Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you enjoy what we do, then there's really no better way to support us than to subscribe. And to make that decision easier for you, we have a fantastic offer for listeners of the New European podcast. New subscribers to the New European can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week, or you can purchase a year's subscription to the print and digital package for just £2 a week. For that, you'll get unlimited digital access and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Focus on crime, 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 Boris Johnson tells his cabinet was a headline in the Daily Express this week. Let's hope they focus most keenly on the Fagin-esque gang lord whose home was the setting for 126 crimes in total. But I suspect not. So while we wait once again for Sue Gray and then, of course, for the Prime Minister to develop a sense of shame and moral responsibility, we'll be focusing on another aspect of his poisonous legacy, the damage that Brexit is doing to the Falkland Islands. Rob Burnett coming up soon from Stanley. And we'll be asking listeners of this podcast, which politicians do you want to see on Eurovision? And what would they sing? And then we'll be putting more blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers and putrid pundits into our hall of shame. So the grease pig appears to have slipped free of Partygate. How ironic that the news broke just when I was watching a blonde on Sky News talking about winning the lottery. Boris Johnson went to six illegal events, but apart from on the one occasion, he didn't break the law by attending them, although others did. Quite some logic, isn't it? Uh, And now uh, more logic uh, will follow, I think we'll be told, to stop focusing on the Conservatives who made and broke the rules in the place where they made the rules and start focusing on somebody who didn't make any rules, not breaking the rules at a time when the rules were different. Boris Johnson might feel like singing at the moment. Which politicians would you like to see on Eurovision then after a very British triumph? Only we could triumph by coming second. So which politicians would you like to see? Uh, And what would they sing? Here's what listeners of this podcast said. 
Ryan Griffiths said, for Eurovision 2023, Michael Gove singing Born Slippy. Carla Mason said, for Eurovision 2023, Michael Fabricant singing I'm a Creep, I'm a Weirdo. Dino Saw, possibly not his own uh, real name, said he would like to see Neil Parrish singing The Wurzels Combine Harvester. Jan Godfrey said Tony Blair singing Things Can Only Get Better. Janie Nedwell said the staff of Number 10 during the pandemic singing he drinks a whiskey drink, he drinks a vodka drink, he drinks a lager drink, he drinks a cider drink. Yes, much tub thumping to come uh, in the days ahead, I think. Will Stanton said he would like to see Vladimir Putin singing Suicide is Painless. And then a few about the Prime Minister. Dave Proctor said he'd like to see Boris Johnson singing Liar. Bob Cherry uh, says Boris Johnson singing You Can't Hide Your Lying Eyes. Tom Megson, a uh, fan of Group Electronic, the super group Electronic, as am I, uh, he says he'd like to see Boris Johnson singing Getting Away With It. Sandra Scott, Boris Johnson singing You Know That I'm No Good. Peter Worsley, Boris Johnson singing It Wasn't Me. As a keeper of the biscuits, again, possibly not his real name, Boris Johnson singing uh, Je ne regrette rien. And finally, David Guthrie, a joke and trivia here, uh, Boris Johnson singing what at one point was thought to be the longest song title ever, Fred Astaire's How Could You Believe Me When I Said I Love You When You Know I've Been a Liar All My Life. Before we go to the Falkland Islands, I'd like to remind you about another podcast from the New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women, and a young child but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or download in the same new European feed where you found this episode. And now... A journalist and writer I've known for many years. Uh, he's normally to be found writing about Formula One, but he's in issue 292 of the New European, writing about Brexit's impact on the Falkland Islands. Talk about change of gears. A good friend of mine, Rob Burnett, joins the TNE podcast. 
Now then, Rob Burnett, welcome to the podcast. How nice to see you. Um, Thanks, Steve. Good to see you too. How does somebody who's been writing about football and motor racing um, for where were with the Mirror and the Telegraph and what Formula One website and stuff Formula like that? Formula One, yeah, yeah. How how come you end up writing for us, which I'm very grateful for, by the way, about Squid and the Falkland Islands? Well. I actually grew up in the Falkland Islands. Um, my parents first came out uh, from the UK, emigrated here in the 1970s, uh, the mid-70s, before the war, and um, lived out on a, a very remote farm. Um, uh, they came back to the UK just before the war, and I was, bo- I was born in the UK, but then they, they moved back out here when I was very small, and I, I grew up here, spent my childhood here. Um, I... Um, I ended up in UK um, to pursue my education. Initially, um, I went to uni in the UK and then and then for my career, I started my career as a journalist on the local paper here, um, which is called the Penguin News. Um, <laughs> and um, when uh, when I wanted to stretch my journalistic legs a bit, I really had no choice but to but to leave because it's quite a small place here. So um that's how I ended up coming to the UK um, and um, I worked on a local paper there and then progressed and then worked with you at the Mirror and um, and so on um, until I ended up at Formula One. But I had felt a pull to come back for quite a long time, come back to the Falklands. And so at the end of last year, I decided it was a time to do it. Um, so um, I uh, uh, left Formula One and decided to come back to my homeland. And, and and there you are. And I mean, this is all endlessly fascinating to me. So, and I'm sure it will be to to, to other people too. So, I mean, just give us a, a brief idea about what it's it's like to live in such a remote place. I mean, obviously you've had warning because you've lived there before. But I mean, how many people are on the Falklands? What amenities have you got? What's the climate like? What are people doing for a living? Yeah. Okay. So it's. Um... A question I get a lot in the UK, people just say, oh, what's, you know, what's it like to live there? Which is quite a broad, quite yeah. a broad question. But um, it's um, about three and a half thousand people live here. So it's a very small population. Most of that, uh, most of those people live in Stanley, um, the capital, which is the only town. Um, there is um, there is a population that live around the rest of the islands um, on small um, farm settlements. Um, which is, you know, my parents first lived on one of those when they came in the 70s. Um, but most people live in Stanley. Um, it's Stanley is is the size really of um, of a village in, you know, in the UK. Um, and it's sort of it, it, it's, you know, you can take a picture of the whole place from a plane not far up. You know, it's a, it is a small town, uh, a couple of miles long by about a mile deep. Right. Um, and in many ways it's like any small place it's every you know everybody knows everybody yeah you know you know yeah. all the gossip um <laughs> nothing you can't get away with anything without people finding out but that but but it, but it, there's a slightly different sense to it to a you know a village in the uk in that we are we are isolated here you know um there's only especially at the moment with the pandemic you know there's one flight uh, or two flights a week in and out and that's it um so it, 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 it there's you know and there's a ship comes in sort of once a month with supplies um but it is isolated in that sense you know the internet is not brilliant um and very expensive um international phone calls cost a pound a minute 
Um, you know, obviously post and mail takes a long time. A lot of things go see mail and stuff. So it is quite isolated. Um, but uh, and there's pluses and minuses to both to, to, you know, to that. You know, on the one hand, one thing I've really valued, especially since coming back, is that sense that, you know, you walk around town and you, you, you do know everybody, you know, and everybody will have a chat with you and ask how you're doing. And, you know, and, it, and it, that is very nice. It is very community minded. Um, it can some people after a while find it a little bit claustrophobic and need to leave for a little while um, but but it's it but it's a great place you know and there's very little crime for example um, and uh, it's um, people do help each other out you know people do look out for each other and I mean I'm guessing that you know I mean you you, you moved back I think you said earlier on in in December and the, the 40th anniversary of the of the invasion was was in April. Was was is that something mm-hmm. that was was that a big event? Um, the the we don't mark the anniversary of the invasion really. I mean, it is it is noted obviously. Yes. Um, but the big the big um, event really is Liberation Day. Yeah. Um, every year, which is, which is um, coming up that next month. That's the 14th of June. That's the day. Um, it's a public holiday um, and a parade and um, you know there's a public reception and there's a do at government house and that that's the day that everybody really um, takes the time there's a you know there's a church service that's the day everybody marks um, the marks the war and remembers it but this year has been a little bit different because as you say it is the 40th anniversary so there has been there's been a little bit more this year um, in terms of events and and remembrance and and of course although although uh, June the 14th is Liberation Day there are other key days throughout the the history of the conflict you know when some of the ships were sunk and some of the big battles um, you know that are that are uh, marked by you know the people at Goose Green for example have a service um, you know so there are other events through that time but but it's kind of all geared up for the for the 14th and Liberation Day that'll be the big one. Now this, I mean, this eye-opening piece that that you've you've written for us, it, it kind of starts with the in the immediate aftermath of the invasion um, and mm. the liberation, because you know, as you say, that when this after the when this conflict happened, the the, the economy of the Falklands was was tiny. It was a sort of sheep farming yep. economy. Um, yes, and then it was powered up. So so just explain that. Yeah, I mean, so as I, as I was saying before, when my parents first came here, they went to work on a sheep farm um, and that's what everybody did here. That was the economy was based around sheep farming and wool, um, exclusively wool. It was all wool exported up to Bradford in in UK, um, uh, but it was tiny and um, the place was entirely dependent on that economy. And um, it, the economy was dwindling. The population was dwindling. I'm talking late 70s, early 80s, pre-war there was genuine concern about what what would happen to the to the place i mean the population was down to less than 2000 people which is you know very difficult to sustain um and uh, and the, the, as you say the economy was absolutely tiny the answer as i, I talk about in the piece um was what it, you know people were aware that the the waters around the falklands were rich um, especially in squid but in all sorts of um in all sorts of uh, commercially um desirable fish um, and and it was Lord Shackleton, um, the son of the um, Antarctic explorer, explorer, wrote a wrote a report for the British government um, on the future, you know, the economic future of the islands. And he made all sorts of um, uh, recommendations, including subdividing the, the big farms into smaller farms, which has which has also happened. But the key one was was um, setting up a fishing zone 
a 200 mile zone around the islands, um, which the Falkland Islands government could then charge, um, uh, sell licenses to, um, to, to vessels fishing in those waters, but also protect, uh, you know, enact a protection scheme to make sure the waters weren't overfished and so on. Because before that, uh, any vessel, any international vessel could turn up and fish, you know, it was a free for all basically. Um, but it was, um, you know, when that happened, that, that was set up in 1986, 1987. And it, I cannot overstate enough um, the revolutionary effect that had on the, on the Falklands. It was absolutely transformational day and night. Um, you know, the, the, as I mentioned in the piece, I think the, the revenue of the Falklands government went up something like 500% um, from this change. Now, previous to the war, you know, the economy was absolutely minuscule and it's a miracle the place sort of limped on as it did. But suddenly, you know, with, the, with these fishing licenses, you had money coming into the islands and, it, and it, it, it's made the Falklands a self-sustainable, um, viable, um, you know, community and society. And, you know, as I say, it's very hard to overstate the impact. You know, my dad worked for a couple of fishing companies. A lot of my friends did, or, you know, on, and related to, to that industry. I've worked for companies involved in it i went to school here in a school brand new school that was built off the back of um uh, income from the fishing economy um i my university education was paid for basically by by that um by that industry um it, it has absolutely transformed the falklands yes and then obviously i mean huge just a, a huge huge change and then 2016 that the 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 referendum sort of hoves into view um, mm. and uh, and then people start to get get worried about this stuff because of course you know it's not just the it's it, not just the the country is uh, uh, the the islands have become uh, much wealthier because they've been selling licenses but whole businesses have been set up haven't they whole homegrown a homegrown industry has happened yeah, ab- absolutely. And that, and that was very important to the government when they started. Um, you know, there are rules in place now. You have to, um, to, to have a license to fish in the Falklands waters, you have to be a Falkland Islands company. So, um, it, it, you know, a lot of, a lot of company, local companies have been set up. And that's very important because, you know, you've got people running these companies who live here, who, are, you know, are, um, are long-time residents, um, families been here for generations. So, you know, the Falklands flows through their veins sort of thing. And it means that the money gets reinvested. It, it, this isn't a case, just a case of licenses get sold and the money, you know, um, and the rest of the money kind of goes off to Spain or Japan or wherever. You know, it's reinvested into the islands. And uh, a, a lot of things like shops and, and local amenities here were set up, were, you know, on the back of fishing companies having money that they could now invest locally. So the tentacles, if you like, of this industry reach everywhere. Um, you know, in the islands. And when the um, referendum was announced, there was, you know, uh, there was worry here. Um, and I, you know, I talk about it in the piece. I spoke to Michael Poole, who was um, an MLA, as our equivalent of an MP. You know, they knew um, what the potential consequences of a vote to leave would be. You know, like everybody else, they probably didn't think it was going to happen, but they were well aware of the consequences if it did. Um, and while they were hesitant to be publicly um, uh, get too involved publicly, um, because as, the, as Michael told me, they you know they thought this was a matter for the people of the UK, um, they were they were taking steps to make sure that um, you know the UK government knew what this would mean for the Falklands. Uh, 
Yes, because of course you know the the the, the squid that is is caught is 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 mostly going to Europe, isn't it? It's it's going to eighty yeah. percent of it is of the catches squid. Most of it is going to Spain. And amazingly, yeah. I mean, that, that statistic in your piece is astounding that between half and two thirds of all the squid that is eaten in, in Europe is, is from the Falklands. It, it, it's, an, it's a huge amount. Like you say, yeah, it's something like 80, 90 percent of the catch here goes to, goes to, to Europe, mostly through Spain, through Galicia. And, and yeah, between a third and a half of the squid you'll eat in Europe is Falklands caught. I mean, it is a huge amount and it. It, so it's not only a huge industry for us here in the Falklands, you know, it's a it's a big deal for the for Europe as well. Um, and so, as you as you rightly say, given that the amount, um, you know, the, the huge reliance or the huge amount that of, of the catch here is sold to, into Europe, you know, it, and and the fact that that is by far our biggest industry. I mean, you know, Michael told me, Michael Poole, who I quote in the piece, told me that, you know, it varies, but but. Fishing makes up something between fifty-five percent and seventy percent of GDP of the Falklands. You know, um, and as a, as we've just said, a huge amount of that is reliant on trade with the EU. Um, and so the worst comes to the worst in January last year. Then you know, the income, the tariffs for local companies to, uh, to to who were fishing in their waters, and then selling to the eu how much is yeah. how much is that costing then what, what's the what's the impact of the tariffs um well you know the the people i spoke to um uh you know obviously some of this is commercially sensitive information but they the the tariffs themselves range from six percent to eighteen percent um depending on the species um and the um, the total exports to the to the EU from the Falklands is something between two hundred and two hundred and fifty million pounds a year, uh, uh, and you know as Michael Poole told me, uh, you know he he manages the biggest the biggest fishing company here. They're paying millions and millions of pounds in um, of euros, sorry, in in uh, uh, you know in um, in tariffs uh, that they have never had to pay in the history of the Falklands fishery. Um, uh, but from January the first last year, suddenly, you know, they they were they were hit with uh, hit with this extra cost, which they've never had to factor in before, you know. And you know, as I, as 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 I say in the piece, you're talking you're you're talking te- you know millions of pounds. M- Michael's best estimate is is some you know is getting towards twenty million pounds a year, um, as a rough figure. And when you consider that the entire budget. For the Falkland Islands government per year is less than ninety million pounds. You know, it's a huge amount of money percentage-wise that's being sucked out of the islands. Um, you know that 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 previously wasn't. Wow, I mean that's that is incredible, isn't it? Um, when you, uh, yeah. yeah, when you, yeah, the the amount of money next next to the the national government's budget as well is is. Just, I mean, it's such a huge amount of money. So, is this actually? Are you actually seeing the effects of this now? Is it putting people out of business or people talking about leaving the business? Um, well, it's it it's early. It's still early days in many ways, but there is some concern about um, about some some of the fishing companies here. Most of them fish across various different species, and so. You know, some of the some of the fish they sell might be, you know, six percent tariff. Some of it might be eighteen percent. 
Um, Michael's company, for instance, that most of their most of their business is Laligo, which is the lower tariff end. <clears throat> but there are companies here who only fish uh, for fin fish, and though and that attracts an eighteen percent tariff, and they tend to be the smaller companies as well, um, you know, who specialise. So they they will really be feeling the pinch because the margins for that for fin fish is generally uh, smaller anyway, um, and. You know, some of the people in the industry that I spoke to, they at the moment, there's, you know, we haven't seen, you know, um, sort of large scale collapsing of companies or anything. But there is a feeling that there may be some mm, consolidation, perhaps, which is, I think, a business word for, for saying, saying that, you know, larger companies will swallow up smaller ones that can't afford to operate anymore. Uh, and there was a feeling that it may it may come to the point where some vessels, you know, especially especially on the fin fish with the with the higher tariffs will just find it you know um, no longer viable to fish these waters for that product anymore because of those tariffs and the, i mean there's another industry that's that this has all affected much smaller because those sheep farmers that we talked about up at the up at the start they're, they're effectively mm. banned from selling to the eu now with tariffs of up to 48 percent could, could they? Yeah. I mean, I know it's a relatively small industry, isn't it? And and the, the the amount that was going to the EU was small. In any case, could can they just sell to the UK now? Well, they can sell to the UK. I mean, in theory, they can. But but you know, and I spoke to um, um, another one of our MLAs, uh, like our MPs, um, Teslin Barkman, who has the portfolio for this. You know, she said to me, "We can absolutely sell to the UK," but. Um, you know, the market won't take it. You know, the UK market's being flooded with other products from, you know, Welsh lamb that now can't get into the EU, for example. You know, there's deals, the UK's doing deals with New Zealand and, and other places. So it's not viable anymore for, for farmers here to sell their mutton and their lamb into the UK. It just doesn't work. You know, as, as Teslin said to me, that, that basically that, that industry of selling meat to the, to, you know, exporting meat from the Falklands, is basically dead um, because it only worked, uh, you know, in in, in a tariff-free EU um, world. So it's it, that that's basically over, you know, for the and unless anything changes in in terms of our relationship with the EU. And and you know, you're right to say, Steve, that it's a lot smaller in terms of GDP um, than than the fishing industry. But in some ways, you know, the farming is still um it's still the the kind of cultural center of the Falklands if that makes sense I mean 80 percent of the land here is still used for sheep farming um sheep farming still sort of dominates um you know the the uh, the, the, the the cultural landscape here you know every uh, I do some work on the local radio here and whenever I read out the um uh, the weather forecast you know I, I I have to read out the sheep chill forecast as well wow. you know um yeah uh it it's 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 a huge thing here and of, and of course historically that's what the Falklands has been doing for almost 200 years is sheep farming so it, it's it's, it's um, blood, isn't it yeah yeah absolutely is in the blood and and the, the school year even revolves around the um you know um the the farming year so there's a week off for particularly busy times and stuff like that you know so it's it, it, there is there is concern um, because the 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 abattoir that, that allowed us to sell into the EU, um, sell meat exports into the EU is is 
you know, 15 years old, something like that. And, and it was built as part of a diversification program to try and allow farmers to have another income stream that wasn't just wool because wool, you know, the wool price is very, very um, volatile. So, so that is a concern for, for farmers here because as well, you know, farmers here now are almost all um, kind of family businesses. You know, there was a time when they were run by absentee companies. They're now all locally owned and quite often they are, you know, one family per farm business, you know, so the margins they run to are very, very tight. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's extremely worrying, isn't it? Um, so, mm. so, I mean, what are the people, what are the people of the Falklands hoping for then? What's the, what's the, the best possible result and what, what are they fearing? I, I think the fear is, is that, you know, basically this is it now. We're, we're stuck with this yeah. deal with the EU and, um, you know, that the, the, the it's it, you know it's not gonna it's not gonna close down the fishery, um, but it is as I as I mentioned earlier there is concern that it will cut off parts of it, um, and you know in the finfish the finfish area particularly with those higher tariffs and that and that could lead to some companies just not finding it viable to operate anymore. Um, uh, as we and as I said about the meat exports, I really you know that. There isn't much hope that anything can change really on that on that score. Um, and, you know, the farmers here are pretty hardy lot and they'll take it on the chin and find some other way of getting by because that's what they do. But it's but it's obviously a big, a big worry. Uh, and obviously, you know, another factor in that is a lot of farmers have changed their stock. You know, the stock yeah. here traditionally, historically, was all for wool um, production. But a lot of farmers did start changing their stock to for, for meat production which is a, a whole different animal you know um and so that that they now have to contend with that um so there are there are there are worries here uh the, the hope is and you know um some of the politicians here i spoke to do have this hope and uh, uh, although I, I think opinion is mixed um is divided upon, uh, about how realistic this is but there is a hope um that uh, you know a deal can be done with the eu because you know as we as we mentioned earlier you know i said to i said to one of our local politicians but but why would the eu do a deal with us you know we're so tiny what's in it for them but actually as you as we mentioned earlier the huge yeah. <laughs> a huge proportion of the squid in in the eu does come from the falklands um and as well as that um a lot of falklands companies are partnered with spanish companies you know the vessels that fish here are often built in spain you know, which supports, um, uh, obviously supports jobs um, and industry there, you know, so it is a, it is a, a two-way street, this relationship, you know, um, so there is hope that a deal could be done um, to, I mean, uh, as Tesla and Bartman, one of our MLAs said to me, you know, ideally, obviously we want a, a tariff-free relationship and th those, I'm assured those conversations are ongoing and are also being pushed not only from this end, but from uh, the, the 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 fishing industry within the EU, specifically within Spain, where, as I mentioned, um, a lot of Spanish companies are partnered with with Falkland Island companies. So you know they are they are apparently pushing for this. Um, whether anything can be done, uh, who knows? It seems to me that it's probably not at the top of any EU negotiation priority list at the moment. But but who knows? Yeah, and it seems to me, uh, you know, as well that that these are. Well, I mean, Northern Ireland is, is, is a similar but larger 
issue, isn't it? And it it does seem mm. to me that these you know that these places where you know issues of sovereignty and, and mm-hmm. independence and and stuff like that are, are so. Uh, are so important have been mm. sort of overlooked in this whole process, which of course was supposed to be about sovereignty and um, and independence. And uh, listen, um, yeah, we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. It's 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 great to hear from you, Rob Burnett, and uh, wish you a happy uh, a happy Liberation Day and happier days <laughs> ahead in the Falklands. Thanks very much, Steve. Great to speak to you. And Rob's amazing article about Brexit's impact on the Falkland Islands is in issue 292 of the New European. That's available uh, in news agents, uh, supermarkets now. But a quick reminder that if you want to be sure of getting a printed copy of the New European every week, uh, and if you enjoy what we do, then subscribe at the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Now, before we go to the Hall of Shame, a quick reminder that Series 1 and Series 2 of Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcasts are available now. They tell the life stories of remarkable Europeans in short 10-minute bites, uh, and you can find them where you got this podcast. Just search for Great European Lives podcast, and you can listen to Charlie Connolly's lovely voice uh, telling you all about Great Europeans. I really love that podcast. So finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame, of course, where we put blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, things that annoy me generally. Uh, Michael Fabricant, he annoys me generally, um, is in the Hall of Shame after showing how seriously conservative MPs are taking uh, allegations of sexual assault that have been made against one of their number in recent days. Uh, he tweeted the other day, I'm expecting a strong turnout of Conservative MPs at Prime Minister's questions today, not just to support Boris, double exclamation mark there, uh, but to prove that they are not the one told by the Chief Whip to stay at home. I'll be there, uh, exclamation mark, winking, tongue out emoji. Just, I mean, where to begin with? That's pretty much a a dictionary definition of moral bankruptcy. And uh, a microfabricant has got a majority of 23,638, pretty much going to be getting away with being a morally bankrupt uh, idiot subsidised by you and me until the day he retires. Real hair, of course, retired sometime in the mid-1980s. When we talk about uh, moral bankruptcy, uh, just as a completely different topic, Anne Widdicombe's column is back in the Daily Express, and she writes this. Uh, Lee Anderson is only too right when he praises his local food banks for getting users to sign up to cookery and budgeting courses. We all know that it is possible with the right teaching to feed a family on remarkably little. And were there a real will to help them, then other food banks would follow suit. So it's it turns out that it's food banks who are to blame for food poverty. Uh, they don't have the real will to help people. I don't know how we could have uh, all been so naive on this issue. Just, I mean, just imagine how happy you would be uh, if you were queuing up for food because you're starving and your kids are going hungry. Uh, And before you can eat, you had to listen to a lecture about budgeting by Anne Widdicombe and then you were given a compulsory cookery lesson by Lee Anderson, uh, and presumably uh, before you uh, had a chat about the value of knowing your place with Jacob Rees-Mogg. 
talking about all of this, I was very struck uh, with this thing. I think it was in the whole Daily Mail this week. Uh, a chef has found that Lee Anderson's claim that food bank users uh, can make nutritious meals for 30p a time is, uh, and I'm quoting him, a load of rubbish. Uh, Gareth Mason, he's the chef. He made seven basic meals, crab stick salad, burgers, spaghetti napoli, beans on toast, jacket potato with beans and luncheon meat fritter. And he said, these meals I've done, as soon as you put any protein or dairy into them, it's not feasible to do it for 30p. Uh, if you ate beans on toast for every meal, it might work. But even if you did cheese on toast, the cost of the cheese would be more than 30p on its own. You have the cooking cost on top of the food at 30p. It's not going to be healthy or nutritious or get anywhere near the number of calories that an average adult needs to function each day. Lee Anderson is treating people like peasants. Now, I don't need to add anything to that. Nadine Dorries is in the Hall of Shame, as usual. Uh, when a young Blackpool footballer came out as gay, she tweeted this. Hugely important moment from Jake Daniels, who is an inspiration and role model. Uh, reminder here that Nadine Dorries repeatedly voted against same-sex marriage, uh, and she said this about it. The definition of marriage and the definition of sex is for ordinary and complete sex to have taken place. Same-sex couples cannot meet this requirement. Um, Nadine Doris, I think, recently calling Keir Starmer a hypocrite. So interesting. Uh, also in the Hall of Shame is somebody really worried about the fate of the union because of pressures in Northern Ireland. And he said this week, if you start the breakup of the United Kingdom with Northern Ireland, who knows what the consequences are for Scotland and elsewhere? Um, I wonder who's so worried about this. It's nice to have you on board, Nigel Farage. Remember about six years ago when we told you that the union would break up as a result of Brexit and you basically said, lads, chill out, it's all going to be fine. Uh, remember that? I think we did. That did happen. Uh, but foremost in this week's Hall of Shame is Liz Truss, who is now in charge of sorting the whole Northern Ireland border thing out. And thanks to a former UK civil servant called Alexandra Hall Hall, uh, of whom more later, uh, we now know how Liz Truss tried to calm fears about the Northern Ireland border. Alexandra Hall Hall wrote on Twitter, I'm so pleased to see Liz Truss become a genuine expert on Irish matters. She was, after all, the minister who told a US audience three years ago that Brexit would not have any serious impact in Ireland. It would, I'm quoting, uh, it would merely affect a few farmers with turnips in the back of their trucks. Uh, and ironically, this cheap throwaway insult by Liz Truss means that Liz Truss has actually thought more uh, than any of her other colleagues about how Brexit would affect trade over the Irish border. Um, and she only thought about it for 30 seconds. Uh, what a great name for a whistleblowing uh, ex-civil servant there. Uh, Alexandra Hall Hall. What a brilliant name. Uh, how much nicer it would be if our politicians had repeating names or partly repeating names. So instead of the usual parade of idiots, we could listen to people who were called things like Peter Bone Bone, uh, Sir Edward Lee Lee, Jacob Reese Reese Mog Mog, uh, Steve Double Double, Kemi Badder Knock Knock, James Clever Cleverly, and of course, Michael Fabricant Kant. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening, and thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman Rood.
A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European podcast, please subscribe. Oh, and please give us nice ratings and lovely reviews. You can join our Facebook readers group and you can follow us on Twitter at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And until the next time we meet, so long snowflakes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.